good morning. Um, welcome again to Journey. My name is Randy. If I haven't met you, I'd love to do that. And uh, just an awesome morning. Uh, God's doing some really cool things. And I want to tell you what a couple of them are right off the bat. Uh, one is we have 20 students and sponsors on their way right now to Memphis uh, for a week of evangelism and work. Uh, they're going to be feeding. They're going to be work doing the VBS. They're going to be doing uh, street ministry and evangelism. So keep our, uh, yeah, absolutely. 20, uh, 20, 20 that are down there, and we need to pray for their safety and their safe return and everything. The other thing is pretty cool. I've uh, been waiting a long time, 20 years, to tell you this. 20 years. So, uh, yeah, you know what's coming. Uh, hold up, hold up. So, uh, 20 years ago, we moved this uh, last this last month, I guess, we moved into this building, and uh, we've carried a debt for those 20 years, and. So in, uh, 18 months ago, we owed uh, three quarters of a million dollars, and we said we don't want to renew a note that was going to be due actually in June, May or June of this year. And uh, as of this week, we are debt-free. Yes. Absolutely. Telling you, I tell you, God is faithful. He's made this old preacher a little bit more aware of his power uh, because I, I said we were going to do it. And then, and then a few times I'm like, I was, hope we're going to do it, you know, and kind of start wondering. But God is good and he is faithful and he surprises us in amazing, amazing ways. And so uh, once we get that note, uh, we're going to have a burning and we'll invite you to be a part of that. We'll let you know how it's going to work. But uh, that's really cool. And just imagine uh, what we're going to be able to do. I'm excited uh, truly about that. More excited about that. God's always provide. Never in, in, in 20 years, never uh, have we ever missed anything or failed to support our ministry partners even through the COVID. But uh, I'm more excited about what God's going to be able to do, what we're going to be able to do with his help through this. So thank you, everyone, for being a part of that. And, uh, and little or big, thank you so much because we together did it with God's help. So thank you a lot. Uh, coming off that, um, let, let's jump into our message this morning. Let me ask you this. How long has it been since you got a real honest-to-goodness letter in the mail? I mean, we all get mail, right? We go to our mailbox, our trash can's close. Which is a good thing. You pull it out of the box, you look at it, you throw it away, you know, because it's a combination of credit card applications and uh, sales advertisements and, uh, <clears throat> you know, requests for money and political flyers and everything else. And so we just get it out of the box and throw it away uh, most of the time. It's not really any, any good. But, but when you get a letter, it's different. I mean, a letter is rare these days, right? A real letter. Someone took the time, got a piece of paper, sat down and wrote with a pencil or a pen. They wrote you something personal. And that was important. I mean, that was significant because we just don't do that a lot anymore. And it means something in this day and age. And what I've found, too, is that oftentimes we keep some of those good letters, don't we? If the letter is meaningful, if it's a note of encouragement or it's a thank you note or a note of concern or something like that, you keep those cards that are meaningful because someone invested in them deeply. Well, last week we began a study of the book of 1 Peter, which basically is a letter uh, or book from the apostle Peter who was one of two major church leaders in, in, the, in the church days, in Bible times. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul was the other. He wrote 14 books of the New Testament, a majority of the New Testament. But then Peter wrote two of those books, and then he collaborated with Mark to write the gospel book of Mark. I've often thought that if Peter put his mind to it, he probably could have written a lot more books. He could have written a lot more, but he was busy with evangelism work, and he was uh, uh, as, well as, as well as writing. So we have these two books. We have First and Second Peter. And First Peter is a letter that Peter wrote to a multi-site church in an area that is now called Turkey. So that's kind of where the church was located. There were a lot of different churches. Some of them were probably identified churches. Some of them were home churches, depending on the size of them. And he wrote this letter there to them, but it's so much more than a letter. It's, you know, a letter sometimes is what we th- we're, we're thinking. We put our words down the best that we can do. But we know that when he wrote this, it was not just his words. It was a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit as well. And so when it was sent to them, they treasured in that way. When an apostle wrote a, a letter or a book to a church, it was treasured, it was copied meticulously, it was passed around from church to church, not just to the people who immediately received it, but everybody, every church wanted a copy of that. And so that's how the Bible was collected, uh, was, was put together by collecting these letters, these epistles, by a, a process of approving what letters, who wrote them, and who they were written to, and the time period, a lot of criteria was put into that, collected in the Bible that we have today. So what we have is a letter that Peter wrote, passed down from church church to church, through generation to generation, that we have today collected in the Bible. We take that for granted, but it's such a, a treasure for us to have. Now, like we said last week, the book of First Peter is really relevant to our world today. The, uh, the Word of God is living and breathing. It's not a dead document. It's not something written 2,000 years ago uh, that's out of date. It is living and breathing. And if you read the Bible, you're going to see it's so relevant, and it speaks to life today. It speaks to the problems and the struggles that we have today. And, uh, and this letter especially was written in a time uh, that much like the days that we're living in as well. It was a time when a lot of people were kind of losing their heads, kind of losing their minds. And then Peter gives us some advice. How do you keep your mind when everybody else is losing theirs? And so in a world sometime today, we feel like is unhinged and is off the, just off the charts and crazy. We need to ground ourselves by looking at God's word. And the first book of First Peter is a great book to look at there. So Peter addresses the letter to a group that he called the elect exiles. We talked about that last week. Elect, chosen by God, part of the family of God. But people who, even though loved by God, are oftentimes hated by the world or reviled by the world. And that's kind of who we are today as Christians. Many times the world looks at us in a negative light. And sometimes, even though we're loved by God, we are despised by the world. And that's okay because Jesus was as well. When you look at Jesus' life and ministry, uh, Jesus obviously was loved and called and chosen by God. But also, he was hated by the world. And eventually, they put him to death. Now, we hope that's not what happens to us, but the reality is that all over the world, there are believers who are put to death for their faith. When they run amok of the culture or the government or whatever it may be, many of them are put to death. But we live in difficult times. We said last week that there were times of persecution for the church, sometimes very severe that led to death. But most often persecution was a simple harassment or uh, the world looking down on or just um, discouraging the church. And so we live in those days today. So let's jump in the second part, verse 13 and 14 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be thought 
to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not, not conform to the des evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So living in days like today re require or demand that we are alert and sober-minded. Alert and sober-minded. You know, Satan out to destroy you, and you are an easy target because in and of yourself, you are not able to defend him yourself. You, when you're not aware and when you're not alert, especially, you're vulnerable. And the reality today is that a lot of us, I think, sometimes have kind of got our heads buried in the sand, and we don't want to acknowledge what's going on in the world around us. I talk to a lot of people today who say, you know, I don't watch the news, I don't read any papers, I don't want to know what's going on in the world today. Well, that's, that's kind of burying your head because the world is changing dramatically. In the last three or four years, it has dramatically changed it. And we need to, I'm not saying you need to be a, you know, read the news every day, but I'm saying you need to be aware of what's going on. Because if you don't know what's going on and you're not aware and alert, you're going to be a target for Satan and for his work. Now, we don't want to sometimes take a stand in life. We don't want to take a stand on what the Bible says. And we talked last week about one of the ways that sometimes Satan discourages us is that we kind of become a closet Christian. We keep our head down and keep our mouth shut, but we're not called to do that. We're called to stand firm for our faith. We don't want to do that often because we don't want to be attacked or we don't want to be canceled in some way. So many times we just kind of blend in and keep silent on sinful topics, or we join in on those things. We actually allowed to loot our faith, and we become a part of that as well. Now, in a similar verse, Paul, the Apostle Paul warns, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, the world is not going to be content with letting you follow Jesus. For some reason, you know, it's not like, okay, you just go and do your thing. The world wants to press you and conform you into its own mold. When I think about this, I think about the fact that the world tries to pressure us, pressure us in different ways by the messages that we hear or, um, you know, the intimidation of the world, trying to make us think and act and talk just like everybody else. You know, we are pressured to conform to the world. So we have to be very intentional. We have to, we have to push back in the darkness and we cannot allow ourselves to be swayed by culture and not be led by emotions, by feelings, or experience. Because those things easily deceive us. We need to know what the truth is, we need to be alert, and we need to be careful about that. You know, sometimes I wonder today, how can people who, who, who know the Bible or read the Bible can say that they know what the Bible says, and yet they don't stand for the truth? You know, a few years ago, I was, uh, I was talking to a retired minister who I assume was very conservative. And when we were talking about some of the pressures of our world, we were talking specifically about homosexuality. And he told me this. He said, I know what the Bible says, but I knew a guy who was gay and he was a good guy, so I'm not really sure about it. You know, and the first thing that went through my mind is, number one, I'm glad you're retired, first of all. But secondly, I thought, how do you, how do you know and teach God's word for years and years and not not be sure about what it, what it says on it. And here's the reality. We're all, there are a lot of good people. We're all good people who sin, but our goodness does not minister the truth of God's word. We don't measure ourselves in goodness. We measure ourselves by the truth of God's word. Maybe you don't know, but we're living in a postmodern, post-Christian world. 
That means that when we were kids, when we were younger, everything seemed like it was okay for Christians, but today the world's just changing some. And the popular thing today is to deconstruct all the things that once formed the fabric of our society. You know, it, it doesn't take a lot of talent to tear something up, does it? When I was a kid, I was good at that. I really was. My parents, um, you know, I would tear stuff up. I tore some things up that were pretty valuable at one time. And my parents were upset with me. I, I kept telling them it's because I'm learning how things work and I can now I can fix them. And so I, I've done that. That's something I, I'm, I'm decent at. But it's easy to tear something up. A lot more difficult to, de to deconstruct something than to build something up. Recently, we hear about believers who are deconstructing their faith. I don't know if you've heard of that term or not, but believers who are deconstructing their faith and deconstructing that in that context is a Christian phenomenon where people unpack, rethink, and examine their belief systems. And uh, there have been books written on, on this, basically. But in my opinion, in most cases, it's just someone who's falling away and they want to appear like they're doing this in a systematic and careful way. But the reality is they're losing their love for the Lord, and oftentimes, rarely do they ever come back in a stronger case. They usually just give up, but they say they've done a lot of thought into deconstructing their faith. But you know what that is? That is, the, that is Christians who are following a pattern of the world that we see today. And, and the, world, uh, the world has this, um, there, there's a theory today, or a trend called critical theory, which dominates uh, academia today. Critical theory is the tearing apart of all of the structures of society, and, uh, and, and then it adds social Marxism to the mix. Critical theory says that there are those who are privileged and those who are not privileged. And supposedly all the institutions and all the organizations that we have today were built by those who were privileged and justice demands that they all be deconstructed. And that includes things like race and police and education and and, uh, and gender and economics and military, and of course, the church and Christianity. Because Christianity is a, an institution or a structure that doesn't teach this. It teaches structure. It teaches truth, that, that there is a basic truth. And especially Christianity, because it too was built by the privileged and opposes the new order of CT. By the way, Jesus was not privileged. He had the right to be privileged, but he was probably the least privileged person who ever lived, and he didn't own anything. He gave his life for the world. He gave everything up for us. So the idea that Jesus was privileged is kind of ridiculous, to be honest with you. He was the least privileged person who ever lived. But critical theory says to be just, we have to get rid of all the institutions that provide order in our culture in order uh, for us to be fair and just, like government, capitalism, the police department, the military, education, marriage, gender, family, and the biblically faithful church as well. And the idea is burn it all down, tear it all down. Now, there is nothing to replace it yet. There's not anything better out there. It's just all, everything has to go. It has to be burned down. Now, when you look at things, it, it seems a little bit plausible in some cases because there's some truth in it, right? The reality is, is that people have been mistreated. Races have been mistreated. The police can and do make mistakes. There's no doubt about that. Sometimes very serious mistakes. Nothing and no one here on earth is perfect. That's why we can't rely on any structures that we have here. We are a part of a different kingdom. And we're searching for a better kingdom. But we can't destroy everything that's given the structure in our world today. And we can't destroy the church and our faith just because we think it isn't perfect, right? Right? 
So living in a world like this, we have to understand and have a strategy. Peter's going to give us a way. He's going to give us a really simple today. We're going to get three points, how that we can be alert, how can we can be self-controlled, and have we our hope, as he says, fully on the grace that's given through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is the foundation of it all, is Jesus Christ. So in the rest of this section, we're going to see three really simple commands that we can write down, that we can take home with us, and that we can live by. Here's the first one. That is be holy. Be holy. Look, look at verse 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's a lot of holies right there, right? But, but, G, but Peter's saying, you got a model. You know who you're called to do, to live like, and that's Jesus, and he's holy. And one of the attributes of God and of Christ is holiness. Of all the ones that are in the Bible, holiness is the most prominent of all of them. Holiness best defines God. Holy means perfect in goodness and righteousness. Perfect in every way. And we believe that that is God. God is perfect. God is holy. He is the ultimate standard of perfection and holiness. And while we are not perfect or holy ourselves, we should all be in the process of being made holy. That's our process. That's our, what the Bible calls sanctification. We don't use that word a lot because most of us don't know what that means. I don't use it a lot. It's too complicated, too big a word for me. But it means being made holy. And holiness is our goal, but we can never become holy on our own through our own efforts. We'll never be good enough. That's why when people say, well, I just try to be a good person, they never say I'm trying to be holy or perfect. They say I'm just trying to be good because we know it's too big for us to be able to accomplish that on our own. And while we're not perfect, that should be our goal. And we would never do it on our own. It's the work of Jesus Christ that makes us holy. So here's what Jesus did. First of all, Jesus saves us. And then he, then he works more to sanctify us, to clean us up. So he catches us and then he cleans us up, which is to make us holy. John chapter 17, Jesus said in his prayer, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus is saying, praying to his father to make his people holy, his followers holy. I am making myself, I'm, I'm, sanctifying myself, he said. We can't sanctify ourselves, but we can be sanctified, made holy by Jesus Christ. And you know what? The only way or the only extent that we can be made holy, though, is the freedom that we give him in our lives. Because as long as we hold on to those things in our life, our sin, that we refuse to, to let go of, we're not going to be made holy in, in, in perfection as he wants us to be. Our human nature resists Jesus' attempts to make us holy. And Satan wants to prevent, he wants to interrupt the process of us being made holy. Someone suggested that he uses five methods to ruin our holiness. One of them, and these are things that we deal with in the world today, one of them is relativism. And that relativism implies that there are no absolutes. If, you, if there are no truth and no absolutes, then it's, you know, you're kind of on your own, right? In relativism, there's no supreme authority. There's no ultimate truth. That truth is left to the individual, and everybody can have their own truth. Isn't that the language of here? Well, this is my truth. This is what, what I believe. But Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Rel- relativism isn't a, a good theory because it isn't true, you know, because it, it, it denies the truth of God. Here's the second one. The second thing that kind of challenges our holiness is, is tolerance. 
You know, um, relativism always leads to tolerance, which is defined as sympathy or indulgence for beliefs or practices differing from or conflicting with our own. You know, it's one thing to have sympathy for and tolerate something that you disagree with and allow it in others. It's, that's fine. I'm good with that. It's okay with me. It's another thing to change your own beliefs. When I think about this, I think about Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham in the Old Testament. He's a good example of that because Lot chose to go to the cities. And first of all, of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, first of all, he lived outside the cities. And he, he tolerated it, and then before you know it, he's living in the city, and he's joining in to, uh, w with the sin of the city. And we know what happened to them, obviously. But oftentimes, we as Christians allow ourselves to be drawn into close to sin, and then we're in the middle of sin before we know it, because we not only tolerate it in others, which is fine, but we discover that it's in our own lives. And maybe you, you heard that the, the world calls the Christians intolerant because we believe their actions are sin. Even though we would love to have the same kind of tolerance for our own convictions, right? We'd love to have that. We're expected to drop our convictions, abandon our pursuit of holiness in order to make the world feel better about their sin. So they don't feel guilty about that. Another thing that challenges our holiness is context, contextualization. And this is, a, this is kind of a, a, a tricky thing because we're called to be in the world but not of the world. The Apostle Paul wrote, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And you know that Paul was a very faithful Jew, but he kind of dropped a lot of those traditional things in order to minister to the Gentiles. He became the apostle to the Gentiles. So, you know, wherever he was, he wanted to fit into the culture and be able to share Jesus with them. But he never meant that we were to join in the world, that we were to condone the sin and participate as well. You know, I think about Jesus in his ministry. Jesus loved to be with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and everybody else, but you never, ever find him participating in their sin with them. He was in the context, but he was never allowed himself to fit in. And we have to be careful. We have to guard about that because many people who try to get too close to the world end up in the world themselves. We're in the world, but not of the world. Here's another thing that we take for granted, and that's liberty. You know, in Christ, we're given a lot of liberty. We're given a lot of freedom. In fact, the whole book of Galatians is all about how we're not bound by a law anymore, that we're given freedom out there. But you know what? The abuse of liberty or freedom leads us to abandon God's truth and each person to do as they see best. Unchecked liberty gives license to abuse the grace of God. Liberty also can, can lead to liberalism. Notice the words are really close there to each other. Liberty doesn't give us the excuse to do whatever we want to do or what seems best to us. Rather, our freedom in Christ gives us the ability to find joy and peace and yet grow in our own holiness. And then the last thing that I think challenges our holiness is, is legalism. And this is kind of the flip side of liberty. You know, it's kind of the other side. And legalism is when people make their own laws and promote them like they're God's law. And then they expect everybody else to keep them. So we can tend to be, you know, pursue and abuse liberty or we can abuse legalism as well. And it can be as destructive as liberalism. So each of these sins that we've talked about or each of these subtle temptations can actually choke out our path to holiness. And there are a lot of people who get sidetracked in their sanctification because they get distracted by all these things in the world. Now, having said that, let me tell you, it's a difficult thing to live in a crazy world that we live in today in pursuing holiness and purity. The world looks at holiness as weirdness, like you're just weird if you're trying to be holy. 
I mean, a couple today who choose to abstain, abstain from sex and marriage are viewed as just weird. How do you do that? Is that impossible today? I mean, someone who uh, has God's view of sex is just weird, and you're, you're just odd. Or, or someone who goes to church even, maybe, why, why do we do that? You know, that's just weird. Someone who gives their money to the church of the Lord, that's weird. And that's kind of how the world views Christians today. But the journey to holiness is one that we choose, and it will lead us to God. I agree. It's a balancing act. Like Paul said, I want to be all things to all people, but I want to pursue God. I want to pursue holiness above everything else. Hebrews chapter 12 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. So what he's saying is that in our culture, in our world, we need, we don't need to be the trouble causes. We need to live at peace with people, but we also need above everything else to pursue holiness because without that, we will not see the Lord. So be holy. That's the first command. Second one's in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. So the second command that he gives us here is live out your time as foreigners in reverent fear. Live in reverent fear. Now, this kind of goes back a little bit to the exile stranger uh, status that we talked about last week, that, that we're living in a world that we don't belong in today. We're away from home, but we're living with anticipation and longing for heaven, and we are living, hopefully, with, with eternity in mind. Now, what does it mean to have a fear of God? Well, for the unbeliever, fear of God is, is the danger, or the fear of the judgment of God, and ultimate et eternal death, separation from God. But for the believer, the fear of God is a, a different thing. It's a different aspect of that. Because the believer's fear is a reverence of God. It is respecting the holiness, the perfection of God. Hebrews chapter 12 is a good description of this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Obviously, we know the love of God, and that love of God is what compels us to live for God, but never forget that God is also a consuming fire. And we see that displayed in the Old Testament a great deal. I mean, when God's anger came down, it was, it was immediate. The Bible says that now the, 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 the fire, anger of God or the, the justice of God will be displayed at the end. We wonder sometimes how, how God holds back his judgment on, on an evil world in a sinful, sinful time. But what we are to have is a reverence and awe, and that's what the fear of God means for us today. And this becomes the motivating factor for us to surrender to the creator of the universe, that we have this awe of him. We're just amazed at what he has done and who he is. And we respect that. We have a reverence for that as his children. You know, we don't want our kids to be terrified of us. We want them to, to love us and, you know, and look at us with awe and respect. Some people define the fear of God uh, for believers to just respecting him. And, and while respect is obviously and definitely a part of the concept of fearing God, there's a lot more to it than that. It's a lot more to just, than, than just respecting God. 
A biblical fear of God for the believer includes understanding how much God hates sin, that God is not indifferent to our sin. He loves us, but he hates a sin in our life. And also we have a fear of his judgment on sin, even in the life of a believer. We know that even as believers, we're not exempt from the commandments of God, that we are to, to be obedient, to be submissive to him. But the more we know about God, the more we know about his power, and the more that we know of his might, his love and great sacrifice us, for us, then the more our reverent fear of him grows. So we need to fear God, fear his judgment. Here's the third thing he says, that is love each other deeply. Love each other deeply. The church is the family of God. It's where we find brothers and sisters, and we need one another. We draw from each other's strength. In verse 22, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Love each other deeply from the heart. How do we keep our mind when everybody else is losing theirs and distracted on things? We love each other deeply like Jesus did. You know, sometimes today we get used to hating sin and we forget to love the sinner. Or we get used to hating, you know, the darkness, and we get bitter about that. Sometimes we withdraw, sometimes even from our church family, you know, sometimes people just kind of disappear. And, and unfortunately, you know, that means that they end, usually end up falling away from God as well. So we have to have a love that compasses all of our church family, and not just this local family. I'm talking about the body of Christ all over the world. You know, we need to love deeply those, those folks in, in, um, in Africa where with Cindy's Hope. Man, you know, those are family members right there. Those are brothers and sisters that we need to, to embrace. And we, we may never meet them personally, but as we give, we help them come to know Jesus and we help the body of Christ grow. So we need to have a love for one another. We're called to a sincere love and a deep love for one another. That means getting down to the heart level. That means being willing to, to love in spite of conflict and, and differences and forgive one another and reach out and embrace one another. Jesus said that the world would know that we are his followers because of the love that we have for one another. And then we're told that we're to love not only one another, but also to love the world enough to share Jesus with them. And that means that the very people that we're struggling with, the people that maybe we have conflict, that maybe the people that are pressuring us, that sometimes we just have to be love. Our love has to overcome the conflict. And we have to be tough enough to stand when we're personally tested or to stand with someone in crisis, but also tough enough to be honest with people and tell them the truth about Jesus, even though it's hard and, and challenging for us. Well, the last part of this chapter is the why. So we've been told what to do and the dangers and the threat, three simple ways that we can keep our mind when the world's losing its. But the last part of the chapter is the why. In verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are grass, are, are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And it is this word that was preached to you. So the reason that we are to be holy, we are to live in reverent fear and love deeply is that we've been born again. We have that power to do that. This is not something we can do on our own that we've been born again. We're a new creation. We have been saved by Jesus Christ. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are a part of God's family, and we are being made holy. And we're commissioned by God not just to survive the world, 
that we're commissioned also to overcome the world. And the way that we do that is only through the power of God. You know, last week we talked a little bit about this book, and we said that Peter was writing from Rome. And, and Rome at that time was the world power. It was the largest nation in the world. It had the largest army, had the greatest wealth, the largest landmass. Uh, Rome controlled almost everything. But I don't know if you've noticed lately, but, but Rome doesn't exist anymore. The Roman Empire fell. In fact, it fell in 476 B.C. or A.D., but really the true fall of Rome that people thought was, was infallible, that would never fall, it fell over time through a lot of factors. And the reason that Rome fell were things like moral decay, economic failure, political infighting that led to civil war, finally, a military that was weak because it lost its focus, and corrupt politicians. Does any of those things sound familiar to the world we're living in today? You know, we look at America today and we say, well, it's such a great nation. We, we could never fall. We, we don't have any idea what that would be like. But the reality is that God is the one that blesses a nation. And when a, guy, a nation forgets God, it can fall. And we've seen down through time that nations rise and fall. No kingdom is too big to fail. No kingdom's too big to fail. But you know what? Our believer, as believers, our, king, our citizenship is not in an earthly kingdom. And we love America. We love what, you know, it's not perfect, far from perfect. But you know what? This is not our home. And our citizenship's in another kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we long for that. And I would, I would encourage you to, to let that be your vision. Not just living for tomorrow, not just living for retirement or whatever's down the road, but living for heaven, the kingdom of God that will never fail. And the way that we get there is through Jesus and the way that we grow in our faith is being by being made holy through Christ. Here's the last verses uh, that I want to read. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Endures forever. It has stood the test of time. It will always stand the test of time. It will always be the way that we come to know God the word of the Lord. And may we treasure the word of the Lord and study the word of the Lord. We need to be in the word every single day, just reading it. Even if it's not a, a lot, just read the word of, Lord, of the Lord and, and it will make you grow in your faith. You know, um, God's doing some cool things in our church. It's, it's blessed to be a part of that. I just want to get out of the way and, and let that happen. We'll let God do his thing. But I want to challenge you to, to assume some responsibilities, to assume some ownership in the part of the kingdom that you're a part of. And I want to encourage you to share your faith with people. Be bold. Be alert. Be aware. Be bold. That's what Peter's calling us to do. Be holy. Live in reverent fear and love deeply. This morning, we're going to go to a time of response. And if you're here and you Maybe you need someone to pray with you, or maybe you need to make a decision for Jesus. You know that your life is not leading to holiness. Then we'd love to talk to you about that. Now, Tony's going to be up here, um, and just, we'll just be available for you to respond. And let me tell you, if you've never given your life to Christ, today is a great day to do that. Uh, we're going to have a couple baptisms, which is awesome, always great. And uh, yes, that, that's, those are big wins. Um, and if you have never been obedient in baptism and want to do that today. Today is a great day. Never be a better day for that. Let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll go to our time of response. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your holy word. 
Father, help us to treasure your word as truth. Your word is truth. And the word of the Lord endures forever. Nation will rise and fall. And times and seasons will come and go. God, there will be good times and, and bad times in nations, in personal lives, uh, in, in, in families, God. But your word endures forever. Help us to cling to your word above everything else. And Heavenly Father, I pray that all of us would acknowledge your authority over our lives. God, I pray that we would seek to be holy based on your word as a standard of truth. God, I pray that we would live in fear and, and awe of you, God, not afraid of you, God, but having a, an immense reverence and respect and awe for your power and your glory and your authority. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to love each other deeply with the love of Christ, not a love that is just a permissive, easy love, but, but one that is enduring and Father, one that's honest and faithful and bold. And Lord, I pray that in all these things that we can live in a way that honors you, that promotes your kingdom, that shows Jesus to the world, and that Lord, one day will prepare us to be in your presence. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship him.